Hello and welcome to the Yarniacs podcast. This is episode 52, which we are recording the intro for on Friday, December 27th. I'm Gail. And I'm Charlene. And we're recording at our local yarn shop. So if you hear happy little bubbly noises in the background, that's everybody knitting downstairs and ooing and aahing over the newest yarn sale. Happily picking out yarn, (laughs) yes. We had to come upstairs and record so that I would stop browsing the yarn. (laughs) This episode is primarily an interview with Brooke from Sincere Sheep, but we did want to do a short intro to basically do a little bit of a recap on where the Knit Some Good Knit Along is right now, and to reintroduce the Self-Indulgent Knit Along, which will kick off on January 1st. Self-Indulgent 2014. Exactly. Second annual. So Knit Some Good, that Knit Along will wrap up on midnight, December 31st. And currently, there are 112 entries already, which is really, really exciting. And I looked at the posts, you know, you can look at how many posts individuals Mm -hmm, have done. mm -hmm. So the highest right now, Not Just Hats, is her Ravelry name. Her name is Diane. She's knit eight different projects for her local teen charity. Kirby Moe, who is Monica in Seattle, who we were lucky enough to meet at the last Stitches, she has seven posts, but she knit 112 hats for oh the gosh. charity Real Change, which is a local newspaper there, and they're doing some kind of holiday hat distribution. And then Cozy Couch, who is Cindy, is doing Halos of Hope, and she's done 30 hats already, and wow. she has seven entries in the knit along. So, awesome. how impressive is that? Very I'm just, awesome. I'm so humbled <laughs> by everybody's generosity this time of the year. Yeah, Thank you all so great. much. And a recap of the prizes for that we have three bags that were handmade by Cindy, who is Cozy Couch. One bag that is handmade by Jenny, who is Frenny on Ravelry, and her Etsy shop is called This Is So In The Bag, and so is S-E-W. <laughs> Michelle, who is Evanston Michelle, donated a skein of Neighborhood Fiber Company Mega Loft yarn. Kim from Western Sky Knits has donated a bundle, a mini skein bundle of her beautiful yarn. I'm not sure which base it is, but really pretty I colors. I don't remember either, but they're really cute. The yeah, way they're photographed. Yeah, there's a picture <laughs> of them on the in the chat thread and the yeah. finished objects thread. And patterns. We have a pattern donation from Nancy, who is Nanny Knitter. One from Elizabeth Doherty, who is Bluebee Studios. One from Alicia Plummer, who Plum Dandy is her Ravelry group. Yes. Alicia Plum, Alicia I think, Plum, is her Ravelry yeah. name. Two from Estella Haynes, who is one more row, please, and one partly sunny Charlotte from Jennifer Weissman, who is Shady Stroll. So lots of really awesome prizes. Lots of patterns and good chance of winning in this one. Absolutely. (laughs) Lots of prizes. And who knows? I'm really interested to see how many we have by December 31st. Yeah. Yeah. Now that the big holiday is over, maybe people will have a little bit more time to sit and knit. <laughs> yeah, and maybe um, one of the ladies downstairs was saying she wants to knit one or two more hats for the knit along before the 31st, right. so maybe it's right. people are going to be able to knit a hat or two before yeah. the self-indulgent knit along yeah, starts. definitely. Which is a good segue. So, self-indulgent knit along. So, last year we started this, and when we say self-indulgent, you can take that any way you want perhaps you knit mostly for yourself anyway but maybe the self-indulgent part could be using a special yarn 
that you've had in your stash that you haven't really wanted to use or purchasing a special yarn for yourself stash purchase either is fine knitting something for yourself knitting something that makes you happy yes something that makes you happy thank you (laughs) (laughs) i went blank there so it doesn't even need to be for yourself necessarily but something true yeah you're indulging yourself in some way with this knit along that's right if you if it is an indulgence for you to work with a particular fiber or a fiber that you love that you don't often work with and you're knitting it for somebody else that's still a self-indulgence or crocheting or crocheting yeah anything to do with knitting and crocheting counts and it doesn't matter how big or small the project is but one entry per person, you can add as many pictures to your single post as you want. So if you end up knitting more than one item, that's fine. And we have lots of excellent prizes for that as well, which we will announce as it gets closer. Or in January, we'll talk yeah. about it. <laughs> and that kicks off January 1st. And I think we'll go until, did we do March 15th last year? Or I think so. Yeah, so it's a very lengthy knit along giving anyone time to knit anything they might want to knit for themselves yeah we could take it to around the 20th or 21st for the spring solstice yeah we'll figure out we'll figure it out what our recording dates are and try to match it up several months though a lot of time to knit something self-indulgent so we hope you're all planning and i know that several of us are going to knit the hito fude sweater Mm -hmm. so if anyone wants to get involved in that skate up your yarn and start swatching. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready. I'm going to have Josie. I need Josie. to swatch. I haven't swatched. I haven't swatched either. I have to have Josie wind my yarn for me. So, <laughs> And we hope you all had fabulous holidays, whichever you celebrate. Yes. And Happy New Year to everybody. Happy New Year. And we hope you will enjoy this interview that we have coming up. We recorded a couple weeks ago, yes. actually, with Brooke Sinis of Sincere Sheep. There is a lot of information packed into the following hour. So enjoy. Yes, enjoy. It was a fabulous interview and we're very thankful for her time. So happy knitting, happy new year, and we'll be back with self-indulgent knitting in, in January. January 2014. Bye. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome to the Yarniacs podcast. I'm Gail. And I'm Charlene. And today we have a special guest as part of our wool series. This is Brooke Sinis from Sincere Sheep. How are you, Brooke? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. We've been looking forward to interviewing you since Stitches in February of this year when we were in your booth and I stuck my foot in my mouth by asking you (laughs) about your dyeing process. So just to begin, I wanted to say two awesome things about Sincere Sheep. One, Brooke, you do only natural dyeing, correct? Natural. That's correct. And you have a lot of very interesting wool blends that you sell. You're not a strict, you know, 100% merino superwash store. You sell a lot of different blends, right? Correct. Which is kind of the interest that Charlene and I have taken the second half of this year in exploring different (laughs) kinds of yarn. Yes. If you've been listening to the podcast, just a, a short recap for anyone who's new to the podcast, Gail and I have been having an intermittent wool series where we've had other guests on discussing types of sheep, different types of fibers, and just in general wool and yarns, a lot of information about locally processed wools and yarns, that sort of thing. Yeah, kind basically, of a new interest. 
Yeah, like learning to understand wool. Yes. From the yes. fleece. That's a good way. To yeah, microns, <laughs> staple length, etc., and what that means to us as knitters and crocheters and fiber crafters. Just so we can learn more about the tool that we use every day. Exactly. <laughs> and appreciate some of the aspects that I I never appreciated as a, a knitter for the first, yes, I don't know, seven exactly. or eight years of my knitting career. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and actually start with a couple of our normal segments. Let's start with what are you wearing or what are you knitting? Let's just do knitting and stocking. Okay, so what are you knitting? What's on your needles right now, Brooke? I never have just one project on the needles. <laughs> but so the main two that I'm focusing on right now are um, a baby sweater and hat sweat set that my friend Julia Farwell Clay designed actually using my yarn. <clears throat> and it's the pattern is called Welcome to the Flock. And I'm knitting up a sample. She knit the original in the smallest size, and I'm knitting the sample in the largest size because I just want to check yarn usage because I think I'm going to kit it up to make it a little bit less expensive, and you don't need a lot of the contrast colors. So that's what I'm working on. And I'm also working on a sweater for myself, and the pattern is um, Eastland by Amy Herzog, and it's spelled, or I think maybe it's pronounced Aislinn, but it's, oh, yeah, yeah it, it, the spelling is a little different than what you would expect. So I can. I, I have heard other people pronounce it Ashlyn. Uh, and maybe that's exactly what it is. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, it's one of those things where I think I heard her say it once because I, I was lucky enough to take a class with her. Oh. And I heard her say it once. And then, you know, it's one of those things where you get overwhelmed by the spelling of it. And you, yes. the correct pronunciation goes right out your head. Yes. <laughs> So yeah. what yarns are you using for those projects? So for the sweater, um, it calls for a DK weight. So I'm using my yarn um, that's called Luminous, and it's a Polworth silk blend. It's 85% Polworth wool and 15% Tessa silk. And for the Welcome to the Flock, it was designed in the Resolute yarn, which is a sport weight, three-ply superwash merino yarn, mm-hmm. sort of with the idea of easy care in mind for young babies and New moms. Oh, yeah. Very smart. And to back up a little bit, when we saw you at the Knit Lab last month, I think it was, you were knitting a colorwork sweater, weren't you? Oh, that's right. Yes. So that's Hero, um, spelled H-I-R-O. And that's also designed by Julia Farwell Clay. And um, I was knitting that in my Shepherdess Worsted, which is a... um, it's not a breed specific yarn, it's but it is domestic wool that has a micron count that's similar to, say, a merino. Um, it's very soft and it's made here in the United States. It's spun in Michigan. And um, I technically am not done with that in that I still have a few ends to weave in. And I um, decided that I was going to put in a hook and eye. Um, for the closure, so I, I bought hook and eye tape, and so I just need to sew that in. But I still have a few more ends to weave in. But yeah, I'm but I'm all done with the knitting of it, and it, I'm really happy with the way it turned out. Oh, that one was yeah, beautiful. It was very, very pretty. Shades of purple. Mm-hmm. So I loved it <laughs> so much. I'm really pleased with the way it came out. And did you just say hook and eye tape? Yeah, you can actually get um, hook and eye tape. So the hook and eyes are already sewn into a. I think it's three quarter of an inch wide um, fabric and it normally comes in white or black though. If you want, if you felt comfortable dyeing it, you could dye the white to a custom color. I just bought black cause yeah. it'll fade out, yeah. but yeah, it's way easier and it'll provide some stability to the back right. of the, 
them and you know, and then I don't have to slow down individual hook and eyes and worry about right. the spacing and all that kind of stuff. That's yeah. brilliant. I Absolutely like, brilliant. It's like the snap tape. Yeah, I'd never <laughs> heard of it. That is brilliant. Okay, thank you. So it sounds like your projects are, uh, what color is the, are the um, I already forgot the name of it. Oh, it, the Ashland or... Yes, yes. It's actually, it's in my St. Bart's colorway, which I describe as a Caribbean blue. Um, and then the Welcome to the Flock, the main color is my Kung Hei Fat Choi color, which is a, um, a intense red. Ooh, nice. Yes. nice. Yep. Beautiful. That's, oh, that's going to be a stunning co- combination. It's really fun, yeah. How fun. Yes, I agree. And what I'm are you doing, Arlene? I, in my hands right now, I'm working on my alewife's cowl, which I talked about um, in a previous episode. And I am knitting this with some MCN from Shasta Daisy Knits. And I am on the home stretch here. I'm on the final ribbing. And I only have... A few grams left. Yeah, she has a wee bit of yarn left. Just a wee bit. She's almost there. I'm gonna have to be binding, hitting the bind off very soon. soon. Yeah. What about you? What's in your hands? I am actually knitting my Hogwarts Express shawl. I had set it down for several months, and it's back in my hands. I determined the other day that I wanted to get all of my works in progress off the needles by the first of the year. So this was picked back up again yesterday and I'm enjoying this is the Alpenglow 100% Corydale yarn and it's it's an interesting texture to knit with it's really fun Mm -hmm. so that's what I'm knitting right now awesome Carrie who is behind Alpenglow is a good friend of mine oh that's good to hear yeah and she actually just posted about a sale in our thread yesterday and it was just good timing because of course it's just happens to be sale time of the year anyway but she's had this particular yarn on sale for quite a while, it turns out. So she's Perfect. looking to start some new bases. Yes, I know. I'm really excited. Well, wasn't she basically right across from you at Stitches last year? She was up the aisle. Laura Jean was across from me. Uh, Laura Jean of Knitted Wit was right across from me. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But Carrie and I were in the same general vicinity. Yeah, I remember your little area of stitches was where I was finding the most breed-specific types of yarn. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. So what are you stalking lately, Brooke? Um, You know, I am always on the lookout for wool for my projects that I have custom-made for me. Um, So that is what I am always keeping an eye out. And I have kind of a project that I'm... Um, is too early in the process to really talk about it specifically. So, but I'm just, one of it is I want to, I need to source wool for it. And so that is what I am um, stalking is trying to figure out where I can get what I need. Um, And that's always an issue, especially at the price point that I need to, to get it at. So that is what I'm really keeping my eye out for. And do you mean, when you say that, do you mean, yarn that you're going to sell through Sincere Sheep? Or I will. I, yes, that's the goal is that I'm going to actually, this is even a slightly bigger project, which I'm hoping to be able to provide yarn for some of my friends that also die that are interested in this space. Oh, so, awesome. yeah. Yep. That's exciting. exciting. It is exciting. I'm hoping that we can make it work. 
So, That's but it's just, like I said, it's a, we're at the very beginning stages of it. So Okay. So yeah. maybe we'll hear about it in the future. Exactly. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep you updated. Okay. <laughs> well, and what's the timeline like on something like that? If you're just in the beginning stages of trying to source the wool about how long until you think you'll have a yarn available. I'm just curious. Um, it could be, well, it sort of depends on a few different factors. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, generally most cheap are shorn once a year. Right. And that can vary. Uh, like the timing of shearing can vary from now through spring. I mean, actually can, I'm sure people do it all year. Um, but sort of fall through spring, um, is generally when it happens. And so if I'm trying to buy from just one farm, I may, I, I may have to wait until whenever they do shearing. Right. And so, because they may not, sometimes farmers, um, either don't sell their wool and they just sort of stockpile it or, um, you know, sort of, I want to say hoard it, but have a hard time letting go of it. And so they might have previous years in their barn waiting and ready to go. But um, oftentimes they're trying to sell through each clip. That's what we call sort of their whole flocks group of um, wool for the year. We call it a clip. So that year's clip. They, they'll try and sell through it within that calendar year because they know they have more coming the next year. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's the first factor. So it's like whether or not it's available now or I have to wait. Mm -hmm. And then the second factor tends to be um, how busy the mill is. Mm -hmm. And of course they tend to be busier right after cheering times. Right. So, you know, <clears throat> that can be either a couple months or it could be, you know, six to nine months, depending on the mill and how backed up they are. And then, um, then that's pretty much it. And then obviously it just down to me to scan it off and dye it, um, which depending on what I have on my, um, to do list can either be immediate or can, I can end up putting it off. So, you know, and then of course there's always the money factor, um, because I need to front all the money, at the very beginning to fund the whole project. Um, right. you know, if I don't have the funds to be able to buy the, buy the wool and pay the mill, um, then it won't happen. So, you know, it's, it, it, so it can be pretty quick. So let's say the stars aligned and their money's available, the wool's available and the mill isn't backed up. It could only be two months. Mm -hmm. Um, but everything can, you know, can hit a snag or, you know, the stars can be out of alignment. Right. <laughs> there it can take a lot longer than that. Yeah. So yeah. basically if you're an indie dyer slash yarn person, you have to learn to be patient. Oh, and, and particularly if you're a natural dyer, um, acid dyers, they can say they buy their yarn already in a skein. They can, pretty much go from the skein to a dyed skein all in one day, actually in hours. And all they have to do is wait for it to be dry. And then maybe if they rescan it, then they need to rescan it. So that could maybe even happen within, you know, a 24 hour period mm -hmm. for me as a natural dyer, even if I'm getting it in a skein, which most of the time I actually buy my yarn on cones and then I skein it off myself. Cause I like to have, um, the control over the skein, the sort of the skein size. Mm -hmm. I tend to um, do four ounce skeins rather than hundred gram skeins because I want to give people a little extra. Um, 
And so say I do that, I wash my yarns to make sure that they're ready to accept the what's the mordant called the mordant and then the dye and what can be on them is you know normal dust and dirt that might have just landed on it but also um they use a little bit of oil to keep the the wool from flying away essentially in the mill Mm -hmm. um, to kind of make it behave and go through the machines better so there's almost always some oil on the the yarn and um so i want to wash that off because that can cause um uneven take up like splotchiness in a way that i don't want as opposed to that sort of um nice variation that happens with hand dyed stuff (laughs) you know so i'm sort of trying to control the look but also i want to get it clean and ready to go so i so i wash that and rinse it and then i um i mordant it and i actually leave it in the mordant for 24 hours and then I rinse the, rinse it, just give it a quick rinse, and then I dye it. And that generally, you know, it only needs to be in the dye for about an hour. Um, and then I wash it, and then it's dried and reskained. So for me, generally, dyeing is always, a, at a minimum, a two-day process. Not, and so, um, you know, it always takes me longer to go through um, an order, say, than any acid dyer would ever take for it, (laughs) which sometimes I envy them for. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so definitely natural dyers, we have to always be patient, but it's also kind of nice because I have to say, um, say I don't get to it and I, you know, I leave the yarn in the morning for a little bit longer or I leave it in the dye pot. It's never a bad thing with natural dyes. Like generally, um, the longer the time it has to be in the mordant, the better the color is and just all those sort of things. So it's sort of nice. I, I kind of consider um, natural dyeing to sort of nicely pair with life in general. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's not high pressure. You don't feel like you have to move through it really quickly because you can't. It just naturally takes longer than um, synthetic dyes. So that's very interesting. Thanks for walking us through the process. Yes. That's some of the questions that we had were pertaining to the process. And you mentioned the mordant. Can you tell us what that is and what it does? Well, the word literally comes from um, the Latin is morder, which means to bite. Like if you if you speak Spanish, morder is is to bite in Spanish. So mordant is basically the process that you put the yarn through before you put it in the dye. And what it does is it allows the dye to Um, adhere more permanently um, and more deeply to the the yarn itself. So essentially, it's kind of the link between the yarn and the dye. In my case, I use alum, which you can buy in the grocery store if you make snickerdoodles. No, they use cream of tartar and snickerdoodles. But if you uh, make pickles, sometimes you use alum. And um, it's aluminum sulfate is what it is. And I I use a food-grade aluminum sulfate. And other people who natural dye will sometimes use tin, copper, chrome, and iron. I do use a little bit of iron to shift my colors. And we traditionally say, we use the word uh, iron saddens the colors. So like some of my olive grays are actually yellows that I add iron to. Oh, and it makes it kind of this olive khaki green as opposed to putting a yellow in indigo, which makes more of a grass green or an, um, 
you know, an evergreen color. So it's a way to expand the color palette. But I don't use a lot of iron um, because it's actually pretty harsh on wool. So I just consider that a modifier rather than a mordant. I mean, yeah, a modifier rather than a mordant. I don't ever mordant just with iron. I, I only mordant with alum. Um, and part of that is also a safety thing. Alum's the most non-toxic of all of them. Um, most current natural dyers don't use chrome. Some use copper and tin. Um, and you just need to, you know, follow safety standards and proper, um, you know, sort of, it, you can't dump, you wouldn't want to dump it out on your garden necessarily. Right. So you would want to make sure that you're following proper standards in terms of getting, disposing of your morning water. Right. So, yeah. So that's why I tend to stick to alum. It's just, for me, it's safer and it's kind of a, a no brainer, easy to use. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, and Charlene pointed out that once again, I'm deviating from our normal segment. <laughs> I, get, oh, I get so interested. So, but I was going with the flow, but let's do check and see what Charlene's stocking and then we'll get back into the cool yes. dyes. So what are you, have you been stocking lately, well, Charlene? I mentioned this this morning on one of our, the threads in our Ravelry group, somebody had mentioned I can't remember what the discussion was. It might have just been general discussion, but I had a dream two nights ago about knitting slippers. Oh, so I finally decided it must be time for me to cast on some holiday <laughs> gift slippers. <laughs> I had originally planned to knit slippers for several people this year, continued to talk about it, never cast them on. So now I am stocking slippers on Ravelry, and I don't know if I've ever really paid that much attention to the slipper category on Ravelry because I haven't knit I may have knit slippers years and years ago but I haven't knit any recently so I am finally casting on a couple pairs of a simple pattern I'm going to try out and see if I like it and are you going to do felted slippers probably you just... not probably just uh -huh. the little simple knit slippers I remember when I was a kid seeing these simple knit and crochet slippers everywhere. I think my grandmother used to make crochet ones, and we used to see them at craft fairs everywhere. Uh -huh. So there's a couple of freebie patterns on Ravelry that I'm going to give a try. We'll see. <laughs> they may be disasters, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> the nice thing about slippers though they don't have to be works of art as long as they're keeping your feet warm and in my case if you can slide across the floor yeah <laughs> definitely how about you gail are you stocking anything now i've been stocking small projects still i have a couple hats that i'm going to cast on for our knit some good knit along and i also it's funny charlene had a dream about knitting slippers i told her i fell asleep thinking about knitting slippers probably the same <laughs> night and our local yarn store is having a sale, and I was thinking, oh, that brown sheep? Is that yeah. what it's called? Mm -hmm. Brown sheep wool would felt so nicely into, into slippers. I have to look through the knitted slipper book and see which which pattern I want to make. <laughs> and then my last thought before I fell asleep was, Gail, you already have yarn. Stop thinking about <laughs> buying more yarn. <laughs> yes, but do you have yarn that felt? I do have some. So I don't know if I have enough to yeah. make slippers, so I'll have to check. But again, it's a 20% off sale at our right. local yarn store, and <laughs> kind of hard to pass that up. It's always hard to resist yarn. It is. It's my weakness in life. It's my kryptonite is yarn. 
Well, in general. Well, those of us who, who dye yarn are very happy to hear that. <laughs> oh, I'll bet, yeah. That's your, we have to be addicted to yarn or else you guys wouldn't be around. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so back to, we have, Charlene and I have a list of questions that we've been compiling for Brooke since, probably since last February. Since, yeah. So back to the natural yarn idea. So I think the way I stuck my foot in my mouth when we were in your booth that day is I said something about <laughs> bright colors and the way I asked it implied that your colors weren't bright, which wasn't the way I meant it, but it's certainly how it came out. And <laughs> I was I was trying to ask the question, how do you get your brighter colors as a natural dyer, as opposed to obviously the acid dyes you can have neon pink and neon green and, you know, retina searing colors versus how do you get a bright color in natural dyeing? Um, it's virtually impossible. <laughs> okay. I, not that it's not that I can't, I get a, I can get a highlighter yellow from weld and I can get a hot pink from cochineal. Um, and you can get, I, you can get fairly clear, colors with natural dyes, but you can't get, as you say, those sort of eye searing, bright, but also super intense, um, clear colors from natural dyes because since you're relying on plants, insects, um, and insects and with some modification from like your mordants, um, to provide the colors, you're not working with pure pigments like you are with the synthetics. Um, synthetics, you know, do have some blends like, you know, each uh, dye company has their own proprietary blends, but they also have pure pigments. And whereas in natural dyes, each plant already is a blend of different dyes. Oh, that makes sense. So you're never going to have like a matter that's only one color. It's a exactly. blend of colors already. Mm -hmm. Oh, that makes perfect sense. And matter is a really good, um, you know, example of that because it actually has a lot of different dyes in it. And interestingly enough, one thing as a natural dyer, I can take matter and I can do different things to it and get a wide variety of colors out of just one dye. Whereas in acid dyeing, you take one color and unless you change the percentage or mix it with a different color, you pretty much are stuck with that one color. Um, for me, I can change the the temperature or I can change the pH or um, I can do exhaust baths and all that sort of stuff. And I can get a, a nice palette of colors all just from one dye. And sometimes just from one pot, even, um, so that, which is sort of interesting. Yeah. So there, I mean, you know, we don't ever get those real clear colors, but we also, but in exchange from one dye, we can get a whole host of colors. So that's sort of nice. Um, and I, you know, I personally really like the palette that natural dyes give us. I, I, it's not that I never buy acid dyes or I don't like um, acid dyed yarns, but I, but one of the benefits of natural dyed yarns is that um, they don't ever clash. And I think that that is due to the fact that each dye already has multiple dyes in it. And so you're already working with this palette that all is kind of related to each other. And so you, you can 
invariably pick up two different colors, even that traditionally in synthetic dyes would clash and use them together and you won't get that harshness on your eyes that you would if you're using synthetic. So you, so I think it, it helps if you're like when you're doing color work or something like that. If you go with natural dyes, you're like, oh, you know, it, it feels a little bit safer, and you can get really nice harmonious um, color combinations. That being said, I do strive to make a really wide range of colors and make a palette that um, people often. I've had people kind of do a double take when I say, oh, this is all dyed with natural dyes because they look at it and they actually think that I've dyed it with acid dyes. So because it has a much wider range than maybe what they think of when they think of natural dyes. So um, I do. I, I really try and push the color um, palette that we can get with natural dyes as far as possible. Um, and you know, and part of the way that I do that is longer mordanting times, um, combining different colors. I, I don't do the foraging style of natural dyes. I am using extracts. And the reason why part of the reason why I use um, extracts versus going out and foraging for local color is because the colors that are local to me are a very narrow range. Whereas if I use, um, dyes that are coming from Central and South America or Southeast Asia. Um, sometimes, uh, like my indigo actually, or indigo is being grown in France right now. Um, and some stuff is from here in, in the U S but a lot of my colors are international and that allows me to have a much bigger palette than I would if I were just foraging around my, in my local backyard, basically. Well, that okay. makes sense. And when you were saying that the colors and natural dyeing never clash, the first thing I thought of was like Mother Nature. If you look yeah. at a rainforest, all of the colors are can be so different, but they never clash. So exactly. I see what you mean. They always yeah. work together yeah. somehow. And I, I also think that in general, the natural dye palette is pretty... Um, calm on the eyes yes as opposed to that kind of jangly color that sometimes you can get with synthetics not that all synthetic dyers um go for that look but you can get those kind of woo really strong um jangly colors on the eye um so that's another thing that i kind of like i think they're very wearable um and they look good on people so well they i almost think that they almost have a calming effect like color work in natural dyes, to me, is almost soothing as compared to color work in certain bright colors. Sure. Although beautiful, does yes. give you a peaceful sensation. It kind of, like you said, kind of jangles as opposed to making... It makes my shoulders lift up around my ears as opposed to <laughs> sliding down my back. Let's put it that way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and I think it's, you know, synthetics haven't been around. I mean... You know, they've been around for a while, but they haven't been around for forever. And um, so and plus, as you say, I think that there is a lot of ref reflection between what we see out in nature and what we see in natural dyes. And I think f for us humans, that is very pleasing. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that is I know one of the questions that you have for me is why natural dyes. And that is that's part of it is just that sort of innate attraction to it. See, and that's fascinating to me, just the process that you obviously have gone through because you are more drawn to natural dyes, which to me is a more, you know, from the earth type of 
approach to it. And you're obviously also very interested in sourcing your own wool, which again, to me, is a very from the earth, you know, taking it from the ground up approach. And how is it that you, so I'm making a big shift here. <laughs> how is it that you source your wool? Because you, you just told us that your natural dyes, you do get them internationally, which makes a lot of sense to me because any one region is going to have a narrow selection. Right. So how is it that you ended up sourcing your own wool? And do you well, source a lot of it locally, locally or farther out or even internationally? Um, I, so I started Sincere Sheet back in 2003. Mm -hmm. um, and basically when I first started, a big part of the motivation was I was talking to a friend of mine that I was in a spinning class with, and she and I were, I think we're truly, you know, over the, or maybe we were doing a natural dye class anyway, because I, I, I distinctly remember being over the buckets and rinsing out yarn, I think that we had dyed. And she um, is a veterinarian over in Sonoma County and has a good friend who is in the wool business. And through her, I learned that a lot of the family farms in our area were just composting their wool. Oh, Wow. Yeah, because they couldn't get any. So basically, they it wasn't worth the shipping cost to ship Just, wool to the local wool pole, which is, we call it a wool pole. And what it is, is it's like, um, it's an, actually an auction house generally, um, where they, they pull together wool from different regions. And then people who want to buy wool can go to just one place to buy what they need. And um, so it just wasn't even worth the, worth the shipping. They were getting such low prices from the local wool pole. To, um, and so they just would, and you have to shear your sheep. So, right. you know, and so what I ended up doing was um, I actually was working with my veterinary friend and she and I were um, sourcing wool from small flocks um, through a woman who was a shearer at the time in Sonoma County. And that's how we got started. And then we had it made um, at the mill that is local to me um, by the name of Yola Wool Mill. And they're, they're in just outside of Davis, California. And um, so that's where we started. And then we did natural dyes because that was what my experience was in dyeing. And also um, I was sort of naturally more attracted to that anyway. So um, I started at the very, very local, uh, uh, local level. And that was basically before this whole thing started, particularly in textiles of looking at how can you locally source your fibers. Um, and so <clears throat> my mother is in sales and she um, exposed me to this term um, that Sometimes instead of being on the leading edge, you can be on the bleeding edge of a trend. <laughs> and so I think really I actually was kind of on the bleeding edge of local because what by buying this local wool, I didn't necessarily have access to the super soft wools that people were really getting into at the time. So I wasn't buying Merino. I was buying Romney crosses and Romney is a medium grade wool that mm -hmm. while great is not necessarily next to the skin soft for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so while some of it was soft enough for people to wear and use, it also 
wasn't necessarily the smooth um, worsted style of spinning that we also were seeing in the market. So I was kind of doing this thing that was the antithesis of what, what was becoming really popular. Um, and so I felt the need to expand what I was doing. And so I actually, after a while, started purchasing um, yarns that were had more of an international sourcing um, cause a lot of Merino is being grown in New Zealand and Australia and some in South America. And then a lot of it's being milled in South America. Um, and now more in China too. Um, but, and I still dye those quote unquote international yarns. Um, though some of mine now are actually from the UK cause there are certain braids that are hard to find mm-hmm. outside of the UK, like BFL, um, blue face Lester mm-hmm. is, is one in particular. Um, so that's kind of how the trajectory of how I ended up where I am right now, where I have a certain segment of my yarns that are made here in the United States and a certain segment of my yarns that are made outside of the United States, it's just sort of a business thing. It's like, have to have, Oh yeah, I'm here. Sorry, you cut out for just a second. Keep going. Um, So that's how I ended up where I am right now, where I have a segment of my yarns that are made locally, or at least made in the United States, not necessarily local to me, but made in the United States, and then a certain segment that are international, because I have to have stuff that's going to appeal to today's knitter, which Mm -hmm. still is very um, oriented on the soft merino you know, yarns and superwash um, treated yarns and um, that whole genre, which I also use as a knitter. So, you know, no judgment there. Um, It's just that they have not been available here in the United States, Um, though that is part of the trend is going back in my favor um, where I can source more and more yarns here in the United States. So that I'm really excited about that. Um, I do have some of my yarns that are are domestic um, are just are what I'd like to call the mill yarns, like what the mill produces to sell. Um, and I will I like to buy that yarn from the mill because um, I think it's oftentimes an example of what they feel they do best at their mill, because not every mill can make every yarn. Um, so a lot of my domestic yarns are the sort of house yarn for the mill. Um, and then I have sort of my little pet projects of yarns that I have made at various mills around the United States. Um, because I want to see what this wool is going to look like in a yarn form, or I have an idea for it. So, and, uh, like, for example, um, there was a farmer by the name of Sue Rosner, who unfortunately she's no longer, um, farming sheep, but, um, she raised beautiful cormos. And so this is a, just a fabulous fiber and she had, you know, just this incredible flock. And so I bought some of her wool and had it made into yarn just because I really wanted to see what that yarn was like, um, because if you couldn't, nobody's making cormo yarn on a big scale, nobody. Um, so, you know, so, so a lot of my custom made yarn are more kind of pet projects, things that I'm interested in. I'm trying to work it, you know, grow that section again and move towards more and more of my yarns being either um, custom made domestic yarns or at least um, sort of domestic yarns that are, 
you know, the house yarns for the, the individual mills that are out there in the United States. So that's good. So you're basically also supporting the mills and like you said, what they think they do best. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But that's a big deal. Actually supporting the mills is a huge part because a lot of the mills have closed down and a lot of those, um, machines have went to scrap metal and stuff like that. So, you know, that the sort of textile industry here in the United States, especially on the sort of small to medium side is really having to come back from very, very little. Yeah. We've, I've heard that as a theme from a lot Mm -hmm. of people we've talked to. It's really sad. It seems that, yeah, there's a new movement kind of to regenerate that here in the U S correct, which is good to hear that you're part of the chain that's supporting that. Yes. And you, you were talking about some of your pet projects. Is Equity Sport one of your pet projects? No. So, you know, that is actually a mill yarn um, for one of the mills that I work with. Oh. Um, I do both their, um, I, for me, it's Equity Sport and Equity Fingering. But um, other dyers dye that base too, which is kind of nice. I mean, this is always the balance. So, you know, because there are designers out there um and they want to be able to design things in yarns that people can get um, readily. It's helpful for me to be dyeing yarns that other dyers can also access. So like my friend, Laura Jean, who has knitted wit, she also dyes that base. And so it's kind of fun. You can actually make a project. So going back to the whole color work idea, you can make a color work project and have this huge palette. If you look at my palette and put it together with Laura Jean's palette and it's all the same base. And so it'll work together and you can actually, it's, you know, acid dyed yarns and natural dyed yarns will play well together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we kind of have fun bouncing back and forth, you know, between sort of, okay, what are we going to pick? And we talk a lot about that. And we like to, we on purpose have picked um, bases together that we're both dying just for exactly that reason. So then when like, say we go to our friend Kira Dulaney, who's a, um, a designer, she knows that she can specify my yarn. She can specify Laura Jean's yarn. And then, you know, we can look farther afield and see if there are other um, dyers who are also dying that base as well. And so for her as a designer, it makes her design more saleable because it's not just tied to this one very specific yarn, you know, that totally depends on me to list it on my website or sell it to, you know, or actually, or if your local yarn shop stocks my yarn that they have to be willing to order it, you know, to, to be able to, you know, knit this one pattern that she's designed. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, that one specifically is, is a, uh, a mill yarn that is their house yarn, um, that I really, really like. And that one's a hundred percent Rambouillet, right? It is. And that is all, it's actually from a ranch that's in the same town as the, as the mill. Okay. That's so, what I thought. Mendocino County or something. No, you know, that one is actually in, um, Buffalo, Wyoming. Oh, okay. Yep. Both the ranch and the mill are in Buffalo, Wyoming. So, um, here in California, Yolo wool mill is pretty much the only medium sized mill that's making yarn right now. Um, but there is a project and actually I can give you this information if you want to share this with, with your listeners, there's a, um, Indiegogo funding project right now for the Mendocino wool and, um, fiber mill that Matt and his wife, Sarah, um, are working to put together and he's a shearer, um, that I've known for quite a few years. So I'm really excited that he's, um, going to make that happen. And it's the funding's going really well and people are really excited. So 
that's one way people can make sure that they can have better access to local locally made yarns from local fi- um, farmers. Yeah, I did post about that in oh, the ago fundraiser yeah. in our Know Your Wool thread because mm-hmm. I I've already done my contribution to that too. I just think it's hey. really cool. Awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> now on the subject, so the equity sport you said is a mill yarn. So it's yeah. something that they specialize in at that mill. Yep. Now, are, do you have any other yarns where you're sourcing them from a single farm? And how does that work so that you don't run out of that yarn? Well, as we said, you know, um, the farmers do have to sh- shear their sheep every year. Right. So as long as I have the funds and they're willing to sell it to me, I can pretty much re stock my wool every year and then I just have to you know shepherd it through the mill process again um and I actually right now on my website don't have any of my pet little pet project yarns listed but I do have in my I I have all of my yarn in my garage because that's where I do all my winding and rewinding um so in my garage right now I think I have what um I think six bases that I all that are all custom were all custom made for me, and some of them I won't will not be repeatable, and some will be repeatable. Um, That's what I wondered about because fleeces can be different from year to year. For sure. Yeah. And but so, in order for so, one thing that I was able to do like it depends on how big the mill is and what their minimums are, and you could say potentially just have a yarn made out of like three fleeces at some mills. Like they will do relatively small runs for me because I need to have enough to kind of have it be sustainable. So, you know, cause I, if you wanted to make a sweater, you need multiple skeins out of it. So I'm always looking at buying, you know, I don't know. It depends. It kind of depends on what's available, but more on the order of, 15 fleeces or 20 fleeces at least, which can vary in weight. Um, but then what happens is at the mill, they wash the wool and then they do something called picking it, which literally just means that they're, they're opening up the wool so that then it can go through the carding machine. And so what happens is, is that those fleeces kind of get mixed together and it becomes a more homogenous mix throughout the whole yarn as opposed to them taking one fleece and running it through the whole machine and then taking another and taking another. And then each of those, you know, the resulting yarns would be different. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And then also on my end, exactly. And then on my end, I am always trying to pick fleeces that have similar characteristics. So I'm, you know, when I'm talking to the farmers, I'm saying, okay, well, I do want to buy this amount of pounds and I, let's try and make it so that they all have approximately the same staple length. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there, that helps because it, in terms of it running through the machine, it's going to behave the same way in the machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then you can give your customers some consistency from, like, say, year to year or show to show. The exactly. And overall, the yarn will just be better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> yeah. Because so, it makes the machines happier, too. I mean, just pure and simple. Mm-hmm. So the machines run better and process it better? Exactly. Right. Exactly. So then it sounds like from the indie dyer perspective, I would think most indie dyers shop around for bases, obviously. Sure. But yeah. you're going several steps 
previous to that. You're not just shopping for bases. You're shopping for the fleece yeah. with which to make the base. That's right. Wow. So your your levels mm-hmm. are deeper than most indie dyers. Yeah. I mean, it's... And I'm as I said, I'm trying to ever more head into that direction, even though it's not always the most efficient, but I think it has the most impact um, in terms of being able to, that each of my dollars that I spend, if I spend it with the farmer, that has a bigger impact than me buying it from, you know, a, um, a wool wholesaler or a yarn wholesaler. Right, yeah. right. And so, yeah, that's, so that's definitely part of the reason why I do it. The other reason is being able to have access to all these different um, breeds. Right. Yeah. And I had meant to ask earlier, what's your terroir series? Oh, the terroir. So so I live in Napa, which is, you know, in the Napa Valley, which is the most famous wine growing region, region in the United States and, you know, ranks up there with France Etc. Yep. for making some of the best um, wine in the world. And so the, the concept of terroir is that the place that something happens is significant. And so in the case of wine, it's like, okay, what w- the trend we've seen in wine is vineyard specific wines. So you'll, if you look at your bottle, you may see that it, the vineyard where it was grown is listed on the bottle. And that's because one vineyard can have different soil characteristics and different um, weather patterns, water table levels, etc. than the next vineyard over, even though geographically they're very close to each other. And so that was sort of the concept that was banging around in the back of my head when I um, started Sincere Sheep in 03. And so the terroir fiber series was sort of my way to call out visually to people, you know, if you pick up one of these yarns, it's going to have listed on it where it's from. And when I first started, I was doing it in such a small and controlled way that I actually had the sheep or on, you know, the sheep's names on (laughs) the yarns and fibers because I could do it that way. Now I I tend to do larger runs. So it's sort of, it's, Uh you know, this is, this farm that it's coming from. And so when I'm, you know, the one, um, the equity sport and the equity fingering are part of the terroir fiber series because all of that fiber is actually only coming from one ranch, which is the Camino kid ranch. And that's listed on the, on the, the, the band. And, um, and so I have, this is sort of a little bit more prevalent. I know we're not talking about spinning, but I have a lot more, um, custom blends, for my spinning fibers and those I actually probably could um, put the name of the sheep on there because generally they're just right. like one or two fleeces that I'm having um, done. And I, I have all of my roving made at Moro fleece works um, by Sherry and she does a fabulous job. She is outstanding, but again, super, super backed up. And so it takes me a long time to get my fleeces back um, in roving form from her, but those all have listed on there, what farm they're from. And, um, I oftentimes am doing just these like fun blends where yes, I may be, you know, it may be predominantly wool and it's from, um, say Nebo rock ranch, but then maybe I've blended in some Angora that's from a different 
um, fiber producer. And so those will all be listed on the, um, on the band, on the fiber. So that's, so any, any, like, so when you see the terroir fiber series, what that means is you can look on, you can turn it around and find out what, what ranch, what farm it's from, the fiber's all from. And generally I also say like where it's spun, if it's yarn. Mm-hmm. I think that is so cool. That is. <laughs> I really like that whole idea. I mean, it just, for me, like, it makes me feel like I'm that much more connected with the people who actually raise the sheep. I Absolutely. just think that's so cool. Yeah. And and I will say, at least on in from the stuff that I do, um, the farmers that I buy from are very appreciative to, you know, have an outlet for their fiber. So if you are buying it, you are directly supporting not only me, but also them. Like, they really appreciate not having to just stockpile their wool in their barn or god forbid compost it so you are so you those are those feel good uh emotions that you're feeling when you buy it are very real good (laughs) that's that makes me even happier now have you formed any personal relationships like friendships with different breeders and stuff who you work with yeah but for sure like these are the people that i buy from are all people that i see regularly because generally i'm buying from a lot of farmers that are in they're not necessarily like in the Napa Valley because here in the Napa Valley, the agriculture is dominated by grapes, but um, maybe in Sonoma County, definitely in Mendocino County, sometimes a little bit farther afield, but these are farmers that I see at least once a year, if not twice or three times a year, because we're oftentimes going to the same shows. And so we just can check in with each other and hang out, have dinner when we're at the shows, you know, all of those things. And um, so it's really yeah, it's really cool to kind of have this community that um, we all can support each other. That's, I mean, that in general, that's just kind of my mode of doing business. It's kind of, and um, there's the, the quote of a rising tide lifts all boats. And that's very much, you know, how I look at my business and how I do business is in an inclusive way rather than an exclusive way. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. What are some of the shows that you might recommend to us fiber lovers? If you want to be able to actually see, at least see fleece, if not buy fleece, um, going to some of your the smaller shows, are it's a good start. And so um, there's California Wool and Fiber Festival, which is up in Boonville, and it's in the fall. And um, that they do a um, pretty big actually fleece show there with judging and the judging is done publicly. And the judge always explains what his or her motives are for placing, you know, whatever fleece in first, second, third, and they go through the different classes and they do a lot of explanation. So I know a lot of people have gone to that show and felt like they got a really good explanation about different fleece characteristics and breed characteristics. So that's a really good show to go to. And then there's um, Dixon Lambtown doesn't have quite as big a fleece show, mm-hmm. but it's still there. And there's actually quite a few farmers that come to um, Dixon or it's really called Lambtown, but I, I call it Dixon. Lambtown, um, yeah. <laughs> USA. Yep. And um, so that can be a really good place to see fleece in the grease and also go and talk to fi- a farber, a farmers, excuse me, that are bringing their own wares to be sold that either, you know, fleece in the grease or, you know, roving that they've had made or maybe even yarn that they've had spun. Um, so those are two good local ones. And then there's, if you, again, if you're sort of, 
interested in the fiber um, or, you know, sort of going back to the greasy fleece part of it, um, down in Monterey, there is a fleece auction. And um, that I have never actually been able to go to because of timing issues. But a lot of people I know go there and get absolutely gorgeous fleeces. It's on a holiday weekend, so it's iffy for a lot of people. Exactly. And And also, it's always like the weekend before an event, that I another show, so I always feel like I can't go because I need to gear up and leave right. the next weekend. So yeah, so those those are three around the area. The other thing is just going to your, your local um, uh, fair when it's fair time, either you know sort of in the summer or fall, and going and looking at um, either the 4-H or the FFA um, kids who have brought their sheep to be um, judged. So seeing the, the the fiber on the hoof can be really instructive because I actually think that um, how it looks on the animal will actually tell you a lot about how it's going to behave even down the line in yarn. So um, like BFL, they tend, they almost look like they have kind of dreadlocks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love those. Whereas Merinos look like kind of puff. They look like puff balls, you know? And so Merino tends to be, um, it has a lot of crimp and it, but it's not super drapey. Whereas BFL has less crimp, but is more drapey. And, and that those characteristics come through in the yarn. So I can, like I said, it can be very instructive just to go and check out the sheep and see what they look like and see what their fiber looks like before it's, you know, even off their backs. Wow. So you called that, uh, Fiber on the hoof or fleece in the grease, what's been shorn from the sheep but not yet processed? Correct. Okay, nice. <laughs> That's where lanolin comes from, just in case nobody knows that, but lanolin is a byproduct of washing fleece. Right. So, so that's the grease that we're talking about yeah. on, on the fleece. Yeah, we've talked about lanolin before because there's so many uses for it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we've had some interesting conversations about that in our thread on the podcast. <laughs> I believe it. Particularly with nursing mothers. Exactly. And, uh, yep. Exactly. And cloth diapering. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's good stuff. Absolutely. So we are about at the end of our time here with you, and I am wondering if there is anything else you would like our listeners to know specifically about your yarns, your processes, your company, anything that you'd like to share with us. One of the questions that we kind of touched on was why I do natural dyes, and I just wanted to kind of point out, besides the fact that I love the color palette, that part of the other reason why I do it is because it's also an agricultural product. And that means that there are farmers that are behind those dyes that when I purchase those dyes, I'm helping those farmers. Whereas with synthetics, they're being made in large chemical companies and often, and some of them are coal tar byproducts. Mm -hmm. So, which is not to vilify synthetics at all. And you know, and there are um, positives to doing synthetics and there are positives to doing natural dyes. But for me personally, um, it's another way that I can use my um, purchasing power to help other people. And also it connects me to a humongous history that we actually don't Mm -hmm. talk a lot about. Um, 
when we talk about, you know, the desire to find spices that drove um, mostly men, but um, to go and discover these new worlds, when you hear spices, you should actually hear spices and dyes. Yes. Um, because it's both. Our desire to have access to different colors it didn't just happen now. It's been forever. And so, um, like, when the New World was discovered, yes, the number one export out of the New, new World was silver. But the number two export was cochineal. And it was such a huge revolution this, you know, access to this very light, fast, red, intense red, scarlet color had a huge impact on fashion. And, you know, to the point where, we, you know, yes, we see, you know, the cardinals wearing red. It's a signifier of um, wealth and exclusivity or emperors wearing purple. It's because purple is incredibly hard to make. You either need to combine a red and a blue, which are both really hard colors to make, or you had to go and you had to find these very specific shellfish that excrete this liquid. And basically, and the way that it was done traditionally was to kill them and just basically squeeze this, their liquid onto yarn. And it was very expensive. It was dangerous because you're doing it out on the coasts in the, in Europe, it was on the, the Labrador coast. It was very hard to access. So it's like, you know, all of these little tidbits, all, all these different threads that, you know, are incredibly pervasive throughout history of natural dyes, their effects, you know, Brazil is not named, you know, is actually its name comes from the Brazil wood tree that makes the color. And the reason is because the color was so important economically. It's not the other way around. Um, so, you know, it's all those little things that, that come forward. And so when I'm using them, I, I feel connected to our collective history. And that to me is really special. Well, thank you for pointing that out because you said two things that I kind of live in an oblivious world because I don't, I have the, the weakness of, I don't think through a problem from starting point forward. And I don't do the same thing in reverse. So I don't <laughs> think back to all the steps that preceded the yarn in my hand, but having you point out that by using the natural dyeing, pigments and extracts, etc. You are also supporting local economies in another way. I had yeah. never even thought of that. And it is. And well and, and it and that is and while that may be predominantly international, it still is actually hugely important because oftentimes it's keeping people um in their communities as opposed to feeling like they need to leave their communities to go into large cities to find work. And so it allows them to continue to live on their land, um, which is, you know, as we know, an important aspect of that we can end. And, you know, something globally that is happening, a trend, and this is a way to help support, you know, people staying on their, their traditional lands. Right. And the history if anybody has read the Pillars of the Earth series, there's a whole section in there about the fleece market, and yes. I think it was red, how how one of the fleece sellers wanted to create this red and how they eventually found the dyes and brought the red into this market. And it's just, it's kind of a side story in the series, but if you're interested in wool, it's actually quite fascinating. I found that part really interesting. <laughs> There are actually some great books about the history of color and dyes. Um, 
and if you want, I can get you the a list of them, and they're yeah, great. That would be great. That would be fabulous. Yeah, I'll go and I'll look on my bookshelf, and I'll um, get you a few of the different names. That would be fun to add. I can put those in the show notes yeah. for people to look up. Perfect. And I know we're almost out of time with you, but when you were saying that about supporting different economies and stuff, I've been to Morocco. I've been lucky enough to be in Morocco. And we were in the Atlas Mountains where the Berbers live. And they're like the nomads who live out on the land. And it's a very hard existence. And we were looking at some of the Berber rugs. And someone said, well, think about the woman who made this rug. She went out and she picked the plants that she used to dye the yarn. She sheared the sheep that she has (laughs) raised. She She spun the yarn herself. She used all of those plants that she had drying in her eaves to dye the wool she used to then hand weave the rug together. Yep. And they said, think of how many years of work went into that one rug. And it's such a, as a, as a consumer in America, it's almost impossible to think of all the levels of work and effort that went into that one handmade rug. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. Absolutely uh, amazing. Yeah. Well, Brooke, thank you so, so yeah, much for your time. You. We really appreciate it. And I really am looking forward to seeing your booth again in February. I'm, I'm already in my head plotting which color work sweater I think I'm going to uh, indulge in at Stitches. <laughs> awesome. Well, yes, and I, I should have those um, a lot more of my custom, my little pet projects ready to go for Stitches. That sort of my, was my goal for this winter. That's exciting. Yes. My favorite color is always the logwood. And- yes. That's always, that's a natural dye. And so I'm always, no matter what booth, seller, yarn I look at, it's always logwood for me. I think that's my perfect color. (laughs) It is, and it's a very versatile color. And I'll just leave you with one little historical tidbit. Um, If you look at the crest of Belize, the tree that's on the crest is actually the logwood tree. Oh, I'm going to go oh, look for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because it gives this gray, and when combined with iron, you can get black, and that's actually... So when you see all of the um, pictures if, in um, Amsterdam, in particular, of the guys sitting around in their very stern, dark black suits, all of those black suits would have been dyed with uh, with logwood. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. Lots of history here. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Brooke, this has been so educational. Thank you so much. Yes, thank Pleasure. you. We really appreciate your spending time with us and working with us to finally get this to happen. <laughs> thank you so much, ladies. Okay, have All a right. great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. You can find us on iTunes at Yarniacs Podcast. Visit our blog with show notes at yarniax.com. We have a growing Ravelry group, and you can follow us on Twitter at Yarniax. Goodbye and good knits. <laughs>